This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Interpretive Political and Social Science, a special series on the New Books Network hosted by the New Books in Political Science channel. I'm Nick Cheeseman, a fellow at the Australian National University. In this episode, we're featuring our third text on the philosophies and methodologies of interpretive political and social science, Interpretive Social Science, an Anti-Naturalist Approach by Mark Beaver and Jason Blakely, published by Oxford University Press in 2018. Mark is Professor of Political Science, University of California, Berkeley, and Jason is Professor of Political Science, Pepperdine University. Mark, Jason, thank you very much for writing this innovating book and coming onto the podcast to discuss it. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure. In the book's introduction, you say that you believe that interpretivism is the most philosophically cogent approach currently on offer in the social sciences. Why? I think one real big thing is that we come at this as political theorists and political philosophers. And so in part, we think that interpretivism is more persuasive at the philosophical level. If you want to understand why interpretivism is the most defensible approach, you have to get into philosophical questions about the basic concepts that are appropriate to the social sciences and the explanation of human behavior. I'd add to that something, I think. So uh, one way of taking a question, Nick, would be, what is the philosophical defense of interpretivism? And that, of course, is something we argue at length in the book. We argue for our particular philosophical defense of it. But your question also points in another direction. It seems to ask, why is it that today it's possible to offer a fairly robust philosophical defense of interpretivism, where you rarely get similar defenses of, say, rational choice theory or institutionalism? And I think the reason for that is twofold. One reason is that in the philosophy of the social sciences and philosophy more generally, there's been a turn to things like anti-foundationalism, which makes it harder to insist on particular methodologies, which is, of course, what, say, rational choice would do, and makes it more important to look at the meanings that people attach to their actions, which is, of course, what interpretivism does. So, One answer to why it's easier today to offer a strong philosophical defense of interpretivism is that that's the direction philosophy has taken in the last 30 years. But another is that other approaches to the social sciences, like rational choice and institutionalism, have typically become preoccupied with methodology. So they're interested in adopting what look like strong, ideally novel, ideally mathematical techniques of analysis. And that's where their focus lies. And they're less interested in whether those methods are philosophically defensible 
than whether they are statistically adequate even within the natural sciences. So the emphasis on other approaches has become very, very heavily methodological with little interest in philosophy. In contrast, perhaps because interpretivism is less of a good fit naturally with statistical analysis, interpretivists have spent less time on developing mathematical methods and more time on understanding the philosophical basis of what they're doing. And that brings us to questions which I think we'll dwell on as we continue on the relationship between methods and the philosophical approach that you're advocating for. That approach you label anti-naturalism. Can you briefly set out for the listeners what that approach is concerned with, what its major assumptions are, and how indeed you adopt a philosophical defense for that position? Anti-naturalism is a pluralism of different philosophical approaches. And in fact, I think in some ways, Mark and I come from different philosophical schools of thought, which corroborates um, one of the main contentions of the book. Mark tends to come out of a more, I think it's fair to say, linguistic analysis, Wittgensteinian approach to interpretivism. I identify more heavily with phenomenology and hermeneutics, but both of them converge on a set of philosophical precepts, if you like, about what it's like to explain and understand human behavior. And uh, one of those precepts, we delineate a number of them, but one of the major ones, if you want to give it a phenomenological inflection, which I tend to do, is an ontological claim that human beings are self-interpreting animals. And as self-interpreting animals, you cannot subject them to the same explanatory forms as the natural sciences. So narrativity is a huge issue about how you explain human action. There are issues, though, also philosophical issues around meaning holism. How do you explain, how do you interpret, if human beings are self-interpreting animals, if social reality is expressive of meanings, how do you interpret particular actions and practices? Well, you need to put them in a field of meaning. You need to decipher them and practice the art of interpretation by tacking back and forth within a field of meaning. And there are many more we present in the book. I don't know if Mark wants to insert more here, but I think there's, depending on which philosophical tradition you come from, I guess I want to say, you might start more heavily from a particular place. I would tend to emphasize ontological questions like human beings are self-interpreting animals, but we might say something about the logic of our concepts instead and how our concepts work. I think that's right. I think the only thing I want to add is clarify what we mean by anti-naturalism. Obviously, anti-naturalism is opposed to naturalism. But that doesn't necessarily get us very far because naturalism is itself an ambiguous concept. So at first in philosophy, naturalism was defined against supernaturalism. So a naturalist view believed that what there was in this world was all there was. And a supernaturalist view held there was some other probably divine world. I think on those issues, Jason and I probably have different inclinations. I'm strongly naturalistic in that sense. I think Jason has more sympathy than I do for religious viewpoints. But as you move into the 20th century, the debate between naturalists and anti-naturalists develops a, a different meaning. And naturalism becomes associated with the view that explanations in the social sciences and human sciences and humanities are the same philosophically as explanations in the natural sciences. So naturalism becomes associated with the view that the same model of explanation that works in the natural sciences applies in the human sciences, that human scientists should model their disciplines on the natural sciences. And anti-naturalism becomes associated with the claim that explanations in the human and social sciences 
are different from those within the natural sciences. So when we call ourselves anti-naturalists, what we're saying is that we believe that explanations in the human sciences are different from those in the natural sciences. The reasons we hold that are those that Jason mentioned. We think that people act on reasons, beliefs and meanings, and therefore an adequate explanation of their behaviour must in some sense appeal to those meanings, beliefs, etc. It sounds very much like a, a Weberian account of sociological knowledge, right? I'm thinking back to economy and society, where the whole point of not imitating the natural sciences for him is that the natural sciences have no access to subjective knowledge of the sort that the social sciences can strive for. Is that much the same point you're making, or have I misunderstood you? I don't identify as a Weberian because I tend to think that Weber is still entangled in naturalism, but commonly when interpretivism is first presented, people think of Weber because Weber is such a complex and vast thinker, and he does have these ideas about the need for understanding and grappling with meanings as central to the social sciences. A lot of his typologizing sometimes slips into conceptualizations that run afoul, I would want to argue, I don't know about Mark, of different anti-naturalist insights, like you shouldn't atomize meanings, you shouldn't reify them. So I, I think Weber, in spite of himself, is still entangled in forms of naturalism, but I suppose that's up for debate on, depending on how you read him. I agree with Jason. So we get some sense of, of how the anti-naturalist approach is opposed to naturalist approaches. And then what are the basic differences between this approach and its interpretivist others? Clearly, you're making an argument for a paradigmatic shift of some sort. Why is that shift necessary? And, and how does this approach differ from the interpretivist alternatives that are already on offer, as it were? Well, I think one big issue is, and this goes back to something Mark said, which I think is very important which is that there's been sort of a repression of the philosophical in social science department, a sort of forgetting of the philosophical. And some of that has to do with the fact that there's an intensification around method. People really think that if they resolve what method they'll study, the philosophical issues will follow. Well, one of our claims in the book that I think has received a positive and negative attention, but it sort of surprised me... It, are precisely the chapters on methods. I've had a lot of responses from people, I don't know about Mark, that ask about the method chapter. And I think one of the reasons for that is maybe particularly in the American scene, I wouldn't want to speak to Australia or to Europe, but if you join a political science department, part of how you're socialized into a school of thought is via the method you learn. You develop a technical wizardry at method. And then it's often thought that the philosophical will follow. We don't think it does. And that makes us both more open and embracing of method pluralism, which is something we could talk about, but it also makes us a lot more sort of polemical or demanding philosophically about what you need to do to make the interpretive turn. So one of the reasons I think that to answer your question, the paradigm shift hasn't happened is that there's a great deal of confusion in graduate education, in higher ed research communities in the human sciences in the United States about what's at stake. And if you talk to most social scientists, they'll say, sure, I don't believe in positivism anymore. I don't believe in naturalism anymore. But they, uh, oftentimes there's a lack of awareness of what's philosophically at stake there. And a lot of attention and energy, not always unfruitfully, is devoted just to a method community that you join. Yes, I think that's roughly right. I, th I think that insofar as we are offering a paradigmatic shift, and I, I'm not sure I want to overstress that, it is very much that we're trying to argue that interpretivism should be based on philosophy, not on method. I think there are two reasons why I would want to make that point. 
The first, which I'm actually inclined to think is a bit irrelevant, but I'm going to mention it anyway, because I hope it will convince some people to take what we're saying seriously. The first is that I think that if interpretivists argue their case on methodological grounds, they're bound to lose. They're bound to lose because their methods will always look less rigorous than those of more formal approaches. So they will always be on the defensive. The second, which is, I think, the more important one, is that I actually think arguing that interpretivist methods are somehow better than other methods is actually a flawed argument. The argument that interpretivist methods are better suggests that if, for instance, you engage in an ethnography, then you really do discover pure facts in a way that people who engage in, say, statistical analysis of voting don't. But I think that's a flawed argument because any suggestion that any method, whether it's a behavioralist method or an interpretivist method, generates pure facts, presupposes that there are pure facts. And anti-foundationism suggests that there aren't pure facts. So if, like me, philosophically you're an anti-foundationist, then you're going to say there are no facts, so no method can access pure facts. The advantage of that position is that it enables interpretivists to sidestep methodological debates that, as I suggested, they're likely to lose, and instead focus on philosophical debates that they're likely to win. They can say that actually the important thing in social science is not sophisticated methods that recover allegedly pure facts. It is rather that the nature of the explanations we offer should be philosophically adequate. So I think for both tactical and philosophical reasons, interpretivists would do well to shift their grounds from methodological ones to philosophical ones. And that is, as you say, the paradigmatic shift we're arguing for in the book. I agree with what Mark is saying, absolutely. But I also think that it's important that interpretivists often diminish their own social science, because if you say, for instance, this is a bit of a caricature, but just to give listeners an example, if you say interpretive social science is about not doing mass survey research, then essentially you're saying you can't ask certain questions that are perfectly reasonable questions to ask as a social scientist. For instance, how many people in community X own firearms? That's potentially a useful question uh, to answer for some um, research project you have. But if you've told yourself that that method is irredeemably you know, positivistic or caught up in a bad philosophy, then, then suddenly it's, you have this kind of puritanical situation where you can't use it. And so the paradigm of interpretivism that we try to delineate is one that can reconcile all methods to itself so long as we remain deeply sensitive to the meaning-making features of them. And so I think this has strangely received some blowback from um, people in the interpretive community that we argue that you can use things like mass surveys. You can, with great care, yes, use things like rational choice theory. And likewise, ethnography doesn't spare you from veering into naturalism, from an explanation that is mechanistic or neglects history, neglects culture, neglects meanings. And so there's nothing magic about doing ethnography. We use the example, example I think, in the book of Margaret Mead, if I remember correctly. She uh, went around doing ethnographies, but trying to, to, to extract from them sort of ahistorical structures. As anti-naturalists, that looks like a drift toward a sort of scientific explanation that we would reject. So there's no safety in the method per se, and there's no damnation in a particular method either. We need a bigger interpretive social science. 
we'll return to a couple of those points as we go along, I think. But one thing that Mark mentioned that I just wanted to hold on to for a moment is the, his observation about if interpretivists fight their fights on methodological grounds, they're bound to lose. And although at some level, I, th- I think I understand what you're saying, I suppose my question would be, is it not possible then to think about how we develop criteria for assessment of the methods that we adopt and the vocabulary um, with which to articulate those criteria in ways that are distinguished from your know, positivist or naturalist designations and vocabularies, and that might then still allow us to do that kind of work of defending interpretivism on methodological grounds, but uh, using different criteria and and language in order to do that. Is that partly what you're on about, that that has to be a philosophically informed process? Or are you indeed resistant to that idea or, or entirely of demarcating, as it were, interpretivist methods as a set of methods that have their own terminology and criteria for assessment of quality? It's a bit of both. I'm, I would want to insist that the core definition of interpretism is better couched in philosophical terms than methodological terms. And that means I'm, I'm reluctant to want to declare, as is Jason, think of what he was just saying about ethnography, declare that these methods are somehow intrinsically interpretivist or that these ones are intrinsically uninterpretivist. I wouldn't quite want to say that. I do think and I do accept that some methods have a better fit with an interpretivist philosophy than others. So ethnography fits better with interpretivist philosophy than rational choice modeling. But that does not mean the method is intrinsically interpretivist. I would want the definition and understanding of interpretivism stick around philosophy. So in that sense, I, I lean to the second end of your comments, Nick. But I also very much agree with the first, that actually, once you see, even if you don't share an anti-naturalist interpretivist perspective of the sort we develop, you must surely think that any justification of a method must presuppose some philosophical perspective. It must presuppose a perspective of what counts of adequate knowledge and how we can best go about that, getting that knowledge. So any set attempt to define criteria which will legitimate particular methods must in itself be based upon some sort of defensible philosophical position. The early chapters in the book concentrate on the philosophical roots and debates, and we've been touching on these. I was particularly struck by the chapter that follows on concept formation, and I, I let out quite a number of cheers in this chapter, for instance, in under attention to how qualitative researchers like David Collier and Stephen Levitsky strip objects denoted by, by social science concepts, as you put it, of, of holistic meanings and beliefs. And likewise, that I thought that your reading of the essentialist quality of the contentious politics literature is, is very keenly done. But in all of this, I was also reminded both in general terms and um, and the arguments that you make, and even in some particular examples of Fred Schaeffer's elucidating social science concepts, which I mentioned partly because we had him on the series only a couple of episodes ago. Um, I, I don't know how you're familiar you are with that book, but I was wondering if you would say that your view on concept formation are more or less in alignment with Schaeffer's, which is to say, is your characterization of naturalist thought in qualitative research another way of putting his notion of positivist reconstruction? I have an answer, but it's not probably not a very satisfactory one. My my answer is almost a biographical one, and my family are non-conformists by background, and like any good non-conformist, I love doctrinal distinctions. 
by and large, I can distinguish my positions from anyone else's, no matter how closely they might seem to an outsider to resemble mine. And, <laughs> and when I was younger, I used to do so willingly and often. But now, and I hope the book reflects what I'm about to say, I'm of the opinion that it's not always useful to stress where one differs from other people. Interpretivism is by and large, particularly in the US, but also still worldwide, a minority approach within the social sciences. And I'm quite hostile to the idea that we should spend too much time on internal disputes amongst interpretivists. I think that Foucauldians can be guilty of that. They can be determined that we should all sign up to Foucault and read his texts as though they're Bibles for us. And I wonder what would have happened to rational choice as an approach if it had called itself arrow studies and devoted <laughs> itself to arrow in the same way. So nowadays, I'm much more interested in seeing where you can build bridges. So in the interest of building bridges, I'm going for, yes, I think in many ways, we are saying exactly the same thing as Schaefer. I could pick on differences, but really we are both, I think, like coming from different directions we are pushing on the idea that concepts need to be formed in ways that reflect the fact that the beliefs or meanings that people attach to their actions are not things that can be atomized and used as variables, or not straightforwardly. The anti-naturalist approach that you advocate for, as we've been speaking about, is not simply a critique of naturalism, but then it is indeed with Schaefer and his elucidating social science concepts, a project to build interpretivist alternatives. And you're doing that by insisting on this relationship between anti-naturalist philosophy and attention then to the methods that we adopt and how we use them. And in later chapters in the book, you talk about, for instance, a synchronic and diachronic approaches to research to inquiry that uh, can en engage with anti-naturalist philosophical premises and a variety of different methods in precisely the ways that you're articulating. I'd like to invite you to offer, given that we can't work our way through all of the contents of those parts of the book, important as they are for the discussion, you know, one or two illustrations of how your project is in a sense constructing this uh, anti-naturalist or alternative, how you propose that interpretivist scholars can bring um, anti-naturalist um, premises and presuppositions together with a variety of different methods in a way that will be more productive for the interpretivist project overall. It's a big question. I think that, you know, this, the treatment in those chapters of synchronic and diachronic forms of explanation and of, of topics of research, it can be viewed as sort of shifting away from naturalist dominant forms. I, I always struggle to, I would prefer to just sort of state the interpretive paradigm on its own terms, but it is in this set of dialectic struggle or debate with naturalism. And so one way to understand those chapters is as corrective to what's going on in sort of dominant social science. And with a word toward, there's much of value going on even in naturalist social science, but it has to be in some ways overtaken and transformed. So an example of this that actually Mark has written quite a bit about is, for instance, reified notions of the state. Typical notions of the state might give you kind of an ahistorical conception. Think of how popular Neo-Schmidian notions of the state are right now. In the United States, a very prominent uh, reactionary legal theorist by the name of Adrian Vermeule at Harvard has sort of revived a Schmidian, Neo-Hobbesian notion of the executive branch, 
where there has to be some final decider, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So to give an example of an interpretive corrective of that, you could instead instead look at the state as disaggregated practices with sensitivity to the meaning making and the self-interpretive activity of subjects. You can see that the sort of metaphysics around a naturalist state as being around a single executive decider is something of a both methodological and political fiction. And so, for instance, we discuss cultural practices. Interpretivism will kind of shift you toward looking at the state in a more, say, maybe like Foucauldian way, keeping in mind what Mark just said, but in a way where the state is seen as an aggregate of practices and not as a metaphysics, a Hobbesian metaphysics of a sort of ahistorical decider or executive who has to accumulate power for it to be a functional state. Mark, Jason, let's take a short break here for a sponsor's announcement. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome back to New Books in Interpretive Political and Social Science with me, Nick Cheesman, in conversation with Mark Bevere and Jason Blakely about their interpretive social science and anti-naturalist approach. Mark, Jason, the last two chapters of the book turn more deliberately to the politics of social scientific inquiry, addressing the questions of ethics and of democracy, and they close with a discussion of interpretivist work on public policy. Why do you end the book with these topics? Well, I heard the question at first that might be, why did you put those topics up front and centre? And I'm not sure if that's what you mean. And in some ways, perhaps we should have done. But another way of taking the question would be, why do we think those are important for interpretivists? And I think that one way of understanding that would be to go back to our attempt to locate it on a philosophical ground. So I co-teach a course on the philosophy of social science with someone who would be regarded as a naturalist. And over the years, I like to think that I've worn him down philosophically. And to some extent, where he started then to come back was accept that an interpretivist philosophy offered a fuller account of things. But nonetheless, he wanted to argue or suggest that naturalist methods, although they simplified a complex reality, they were justified because they generated beneficial knowledge. So he would come back and say, this is not quite how he would phrase it because he wasn't a rational choice theorist, but he would come back and say to me something like, suppose that rational choice models could help us end the AIDS epidemic in Africa. Wouldn't you be in favour of that? To which the answer is obviously yes. But the question or his question relies heavily on the suppose. So it takes the debate in an ethical way. So I, I, I don't want to overplay this, but I do think that because naturalists don't have a philosophical defence of what they're doing, they tend to now, if pushed philosophically, defend what they do as evil, as a, as a simplification that is, one, a useful heuristic to get better knowledge, or two, a useful heuristic to get knowledge by which to do good. And I wanted to challenge, and I'm sure Jason did as well, both of those arguments. 
And the final two chapters, I think, provide, I hope, a very robust response to those arguments. They suggest, on the contrary, that the very approach you take is itself involving an ethical decision, because how you treat the subjects you're studying, whether they're voters, whether they're a tribe in, a, in Papua New Guinea, whether it's a political party, whether it's an interest group, however you treat the people in that study, you are making an ethical decision about the morally correct way to treat them. So we don't think that you can divorce the kind of philosophical perspective or methodological perspective that you take to social science from an ethical perspective of how you should treat other beings. And that's really what we're then trying to bring out in the final two chapters. So we hope what we're doing in those two chapters is first responding to ad hoc ways in which naturalist social scientists might defend their approaches once they accept their simplifications. And second, showing that if you adopt some sort of humanist ethic, then you really ought to be pursuing interpretivist inquiry. Is this in some way then the culmination of the argument that you pursue in different ways throughout the book on the relationship between contingency and power and the need for someone adopting an interpretivist approach to attend to both of these, that necessarily then that this agenda that is at once democratic and ethical emerges as a consequence of the attention to those two strands? I think there is a complex relationship there. And Going back to your reference to Weber, one of the reasons I sort of tend to push Weber onto the naturalist side is because he's very well known, at least in social and political theory circles, for his distinction between facts and values. And that is one more naturalist dogma from the interpretive perspective. And you could view these last two chapters as having a go at the notion that it's it's not that there isn't a helpful difference to be drawn at times. It's that from the interpretive perspective, there is a, there's a complex relationship between explanatory frameworks and ethical ones. So for instance, the one you brought up, contingent causality. I don't, I don't think we had a chance to discuss this, but it's another major philosophical term within the interpretive tradition. There's a kind of causality particular to the explanation of human behavior because we're creative meaning-making agents that's contingent. It's not mechanistic, and we make the distinction in the book Mechanistic causality, more typical of the natural sciences, is one where antecedent conditions predictably generate some sort of consequence set of conditions. In contingent causality, no set of antecedent conditions can ever guarantee a consequent because the agent in question is a creative agent that makes meanings and might contingently reason about their beliefs, practices, actions differently. Now, where's the ethical in that? The ethical is a kind of critique of technocracy or a perspective that says, I can treat human beings like brute objects. The fact that I can't philosophically on the interpretive view, because we're not mechanistic, does eliminate certain ought positions. You can get rid of the sort of social theory that undergirds, if you like, certain ethical and ideological positions. We tend to often gather those under technocracy, but it really covers a tremendously wide range of views. I mean, everything from a kind of Stalinist version of Marxism to um, certain forms of uh, free market economics or nudging agents. There's a lot of forms of technocracy where the mistake that's made is at the level of social theory, right? That, that, that you're treating human agents as mechanical, 
but that has an ethical upshot. It does damage to the ethical or political or ideological position. I do want to suggest, though, that we need to think about the ethics of how we go about these modes of inquiry. It's part of what I was trying to say when I wanted to insist that we understand our decision to adopt a particular approach to social science as one that is primarily philosophical, not methodological. And if I could offer an example of what I have in mind about how that difference plays out, I'd like to focus for a bit on the so-called empirical turn in deliberative democracy. Now, the empirical turn in deliberative democracy includes a lot of very good work, but it also includes a lot of work that is about trying to find formal statistical-based correlations between particular settings and the ways in which deliberation works. So in other words, you're after the idea that under certain circumstances, which can be specified in advance, deliberation will work in this way. Under others, it might work in another way. Now, notice what that sort of explanation does. It suggests that you can explain how deliberation works by pointing to formal features of the situation rather than the content of the deliberation. So the deliberative turn, insofar as it uses those formal methods, moves away from the very conception of the person that inspires the moral agenda around deliberative democracy in the first place. The moral agenda around deliberative democracy is based on an understanding of people as agents who have an ability to reflect on their beliefs, change them, and act innovatively accordingly. If you replace that view with one that says people are bound to act in certain ways because of their context, and we can model that statistically, what are you doing to the original ethical impulse behind deliberative democracy? So it seems to me that deliberative Democrats need to sort out the extent to which they're committed to, A, formal methods that undercut the view of people as capable of reasoning for themselves and deliberating, or the extent to which they're committed to a moral and political agenda, which presupposes that people are agents who are capable of reasoning and deliberating. On this point about the relationship between philosophical anti-naturalism and then the methods that we adopt as interpretivists, I think that while, while a lot of social scientists and not only interpretivists would be nodding furiously at your call for us to get out of this qualitative-quantitative divide, is there a danger with this big tent approach that we end up in a situation where, how shall I put it, that we're all interpretivists now and then if in some sense we're all interpretivists, then none of us are and that people who may, may sort of find a way to, to, through a little bit of philosophical footwork, call themselves interpretivists without making really the sorts of commitments to the interpretivist agenda that the, those of us who sort of associate interpretivism with certain methodological commitments would call for? I think as an empirical hypothesis, it's just very, very unlikely, unfortunately, that everyone's going to accept the kind of philosophy that Jason and I are arguing for and become an interpretist. But if they did, then I guess that I would want to focus more on looking in more detail at what the kind of philosophy we're arguing for means and drawing distinctions amongst what you might think of as 
people who pay lip service to interpretivist philosophy but aren't engaging in interpretivist social science, really, on the one hand. And on the other hand, people who are trying to think through the philosophical issues and genuinely apply them to how they understand the social world. Yeah, I would also add to that that I think that in some ways <laughs> the, the picture is very much the reverse. I mean, I appreciate the question because that's actually one of the objections that came up in the critical review roundtable. But very much the reverse or something like the reverse is true. Many of those who gather around methodologies that they think ensure interpretive output actually are often sort of colored by naturalist philosophical inclinations or concept formation. And so I actually think that there's there's no danger of this, but I, I push for and I'm, and I'm on the side of a more humanistic understanding of the social sciences, where really the social sciences are part of the humanities rightly understood. And I don't think we're anywhere near the danger of that. It, it, what it would mean is it would be a branch of the humanities where methods like mass surveys, all these things we're talking about, rational choice, ethnography, they're used, but they're used at the service of humanists who are very historically sensitive to storytelling and to meanings. And I just don't think were anywhere near that. I, I'm sort of perplexed by the claim that someone could then easily pose as interpretivist in our terms. I, I don't think, I think the opposite is true. It's a it's philosophically demanding and methodologically forgiving account that's given in our book. I'd, I'd like to come back on that because I agree very much with that. It seems to me that today we don't live in a world in which graduate students want to do formal studies but feel they need to pay lip service to interpretivist philosophy. That's not the world we live in. We live in a world in which graduates are interested in interpretive work and interpretive ideas, but find themselves disciplined by graduate programs to adopt more formal methods. So we actually live in a world that's the reverse of that which you suggested, Nick. And in that context, I think the important thing the book does is provide graduate students who naturally want to engage in interpretative style work to understand the meanings that are people attached to their actions and practices. We provide them with a philosophical response to those mentors, programs, courses that will try to get them to drop those interests and instead adopt ones that are more consonant with formal methods. Yeah, that's really interesting because as you, you gather, the question is in part informed by the criticism that Peregrine Schwarze offers mm -hmm. of your book in that critical review symposium. Her point, if I understood it correctly, is that exactly because the curricular context is one in which positivist methods, as she would refer to them, predominate, the consequence is that unless we find a way to stake out some distinctive ground for interpretivist methods and develop an epistemic community, which has uh, particular vocabulary and concerns, then in a sense, we're lost. And clearly, you don't uh, hew to that view. You think that there are opportunities for a different way of approaching and engaging with this curricular context uh, from her. And that, that's by way of observation. If there's anything you'd like to add on that point. There is. Do. There is. I mean, I mean uh, the first thing I'd like to add is that in some senses, I wish I was agnostic on that issue. I wish I could just say, why do we care about what is politically efficacious in the academic world. Why don't we just care about what's true? So whether she's right or not, our first instinct should be what's true. But let's shift from that and assume that we are interested in what is a politically good move for an interpretivist community to make. 
her position presupposes that the interpretivist community must ground itself by ring-fencing methods. I don't see why that's true. Why shouldn't an interpretivist community ground itself and sustain itself by ring-fencing around a philosophical perspective and looking at the methods that those sustain? So our position is not incompatible with the kind of political position she's trying to put interpretivism in. On the contrary, all we're then saying is that the way to sustain an interpretivist community in a positivist world is not to ring-fence interpretivist methods, but rather to insist on interpretivist philosophy as what will legitimate those methods. If she would want to do away with the philosophy, then the question would be, how would you legitimate those methods, even to yourselves, let alone to other members of the department who aren't so sympathetic to interpretivist work? Another observation that Peregrine Schwarze has, and this is the last one that I'll bring up, but it's also something that Lisa Wedeen raises in her response to the book, is that your book seems to pay very little attention to feminist epistemologies and ontologists, you know, the, the likes of Sandra Harding, for instance, whose notion of strong objectivity, and here I'm expanding on her point and thinking about it on my own terms, would seem to recommend itself to your discussion. Lisa Wedeen also points to, for instance, the likes of Spivak, Mahmoud, really Brown and Butler and asks, well, where are they in your exchanges? In some senses, there are some deep affinities there. Our notion of identity, for instance, as anti-essentialist. I think we use the example, if I remember correctly, of Samuel Huntington and civilizational identity, Islamophobia. But we very well could have, and maybe should have, included an example that spoke to the reification or essentialization, a historical reduction of different identities and the kind of work that that does ethically and politically. I think that there's affinities there. And I think that anti-naturalist and interpretive approach, this is another one of these areas where there's a complex relationship between ethics, ideology, and epistemology. Because once you take on an interpretive epistemology, it does damage to certain forms of selfhood. Does it leave you with a particular determinant position, like, say, a particular form of feminism? I don't know. That'd be a wider discussion. But does it get certain things off the table, like maybe certain forms of patriarchy where you're reduced to, you know, in, in a crude way to like sort of brute biological facts about you? Yes, it does do damage to those. And in that sense, I think that the book is, can come to the aid of people who are sympathetic to, say, third wave feminism, people like Judith Butler, who emphasizes the performativity of gender and so on. I think that there is some philosophical affinity and overlap there. So you've already said that there is really no safe methodological ground for interpretivists, a ground that they can demarcate as their own. But the, you acknowledge that there is relatively safer methodological ground, your ethnographic work, relational interviewing of the sort that Leanne Fuji advocated for, archival genealogies, and, and so on. If a researcher who identifies as an interpretivist is persuaded by your argument and steps outside of this comfort zone, as it were, and adopts a wider range of methods, crudely put, 
you have any tips or tricks for them to sort of stop straying into naturalist thought other than sort of keep your philosophical bearings uh, with you, given that naturalist thought is, after all, uh, so pervasive? I, it seems from reading your book that even some of the most experienced scholars whom you cite and admire for their wide-ranging interpretivist work, the likes of James Scott, for instance, who we had on the last episode, in fact, sometimes still stray inadvertently into naturalist tendencies. So how do we prevent that from happening? I don't know if there's a methodology or heuristic that's simply going to prevent it. I guess I would say that it's important, probably, generally speaking, to go in asking the right sorts of questions. And the right sorts of questions are, what were someone's reasons or a group of people's reasons for doing what that person or those people did? And then the second question would be, what wider set of beliefs or main or meanings supported them in holding those reasons? So in other words, first try to understand something from the other's perspective. Why did they do what they did? And then once you know why they did it, ask why they had that reason. What made that reason seem sensible for them? The only slight caveat I would want to throw in there is I don't think that we should feel limited in appealing only to the reasons that they themselves would give. We should be open to the idea that people lie, they lie to us, they lie to themselves. So should, we should be open to offering more speculative reasons. But nonetheless, the reasons should be ones that account, you know, our explanations of actions and practices should be in terms of firstly, the reasons people have for doing what they do, and secondly, the wider set of meanings that make those reasons sensible to them. I think what Mark is saying is really important. I think there's a tendency to mute the other and to not listen to their meanings. Often the methods that I find in different naturalist theories are not methods that a social scientist would ever apply to themselves or in their ordinary life to other people around them to explain what they're doing. I don't want to overstate this. I do think there are folk naturalisms, and I don't think there's some ahistorical common sense. But I think there's a tendency often to revert to narrativity and storytelling when accounting for one's own actions. And for the actions of those that we're close to, we don't make the reductive move to mechanism. We don't make the reductive move to sort of reification and essentialism, typically. I would also just add really quickly, I love this Wittgensteinian maxim about a picture held as captive. Because I, th I really think that we're held captive oftentimes as theorists, as people who study politics, to the notion that what we're really doing is a science. And if instead we make this interpretive shift to this is a form of an art of interpretation, where I am, I'm doing something like closer to what humanities scholars do when they read Hamlet. When I'm reading the social world, I'm asking myself the question, why did Hamlet said the time is out of joint? Why did that person say, make America great again? Why did that person say, feel the burn? That's an interpretive question. And if we remain sensitive to the fact that we're practicing an art of interpretation in the social world, and we're not captive to this idea that we're doing a science, now that takes philosophical work and reflection. But I really think we're held captive by this picture. Ordinarily, we close by asking authors what they've been working on recently and what we can look forward to them next. But Jason, I see you already have another book out and also with Oxford. Congratulations on that. And can you briefly tell us what it's about, please? Sure. Well, and in the acknowledgments, I thank Mark because Mark has been just a huge uh, intellectual gift in my life. I mean, I just really made a leap forward studying with him uh, interpretive theory. And this latest book, it's called We Built Reality 
uh, shows the fingerprints of, of the time I've spent uh, studying and writing with Mark. And the short version of it is that it sort of turns the table on the naturalist viewpoint and instead says, what if we read social science as a form of meaning making in the world? What kind of a map would it produce about the world we live in? So We Built Reality refers to the kind of world we inhabit, a world of racialized policing, wars, a so-called science of economics, et cetera, et cetera. And that is very much comes, one of the reasons the book was turned around so quickly is it comes straight out of the stuff that Mark and I were doing. It's highly influenced by what I learned from him and the dialogue that I've had with him. And Mark, where is your research taking you presently? Well, I've been engaging in large-scale funded collaborative projects with a lot of different collaborators, the aim of which has really been to take some of the work I've done trying to use interpretivism to develop an alternative perspective on governance and use that to look at different areas of governance. So I've we've run a series of workshops and conferences, many of which have come out in edited volumes on things like decentering counterterrorism, decentering healthcare, decentering urban governance. So that's been a pretty major enterprise. And when I find time in between that, I'm trying to finish up a book on what it means to be a post-foundationist, but also to be a humanist and a historicist. So a, a kind of philosophical riposte to forms of post-foundationism that tend to owe more to structuralism. Thank you. Mark Beaver and Jason Blakely, I've really enjoyed this discussion and I hope that our listeners will have as well. And I'd like to thank you very much for joining us on New Books in Interpretive Political and Social Science to discuss interpretive social science and anti-naturalist approach. And dear listeners, if you found this episode interesting, then I'm sure you'll also enjoy the previous two episodes in the series with authors of books discussing interpretive methodologies, which have come up in the course of our discussion today namely Devomir Janow and Perry Schwarze on interpretive research design and Fred Schaefer on elucidating social science concepts. You can find those interviews and other episodes in the series on the New Books Network website as well as thousands of others on a variety of topics and in all disciplines.